This is Books for Breakfast, a podcast where we talk about books and writing. I'm Enda Wiley. And I'm Peter Sir. And you're all very welcome to this morning's show. Why have women been treated differently and discriminated against in the literary world? Why has gender been a problem in the writing, publishing, funding and reviewing scene? And why does it matter? Eilish de Guvna asked 21 writers who were born in mid-20th century Ireland, north and south, to write about their literary lives. And the result is, look, it's a woman writer, Irish Literary Feminisms, 1970-2020, edited by Eilish Nguivna and published by Arlen House. And on today's programme, Enda interviews editor and contributor Eilish Nguivna. And joining Enda also is distinguished author Catherine Dunn. So the coffee's made. The toast is on. And the books are on the table. Today on Books for Breakfast, we are here to celebrate Look, It's a Woman Writer, published by Arlen House just this year. It's a collection of 21 essays by Irish women writers and it's edited by Eilish Nguivna, writers who were born in mid-20th century Ireland, north and south, and who were asked to write about their literary lives. These are rich, they're vivid, they're unique, they're highly memorable essays which give an amazing picture of Ireland's literary landscape from diverse female points of view. Here are poets, there are fiction writers, playwrights, writers in Irish and English who have written accounts which are really lively, intelligent. I laughed a lot when I read some of them, honest expositions of the writing life during a pivotal period in the history of Irish literature when legislation for gender equality was beginning to be enacted and happily they are maturing as writers growing older in an Ireland where a great deal has changed for the better I think definitely and these 21 writers I want to name them all they are Eilish Nguivna Catherine Dunn Leah Mills Maeve McGuckian Evelyn Conlon Mary O'Malley Liz McManus Mary O'Donnell Moya Cannon Celia Dufresne Mary Dorsey, Anne Devlin, Mary Rose Callahan, Mary Morrissey, Anya Nicolin, Sophia Hillen, Ruth Carr, Cherry Smith, Marie de Woods, Ivy Bannister and Phil Herbert. They are all amazing women who have, as the book says, participated in and created new and more egalitarian literary scenes through their activism, but above all with their writing. They were movers and shakers when it really mattered and they are literary survivors. And I'm absolutely delighted to have two of them here today. We are joined by Eilish Nguivna. She's the editor, as I said, but she's also one of the contributors to this collection of essays and the novelist Catherine Dunn. So I'll start by introducing Catherine. Catherine, you're very welcome to Books for Breakfast. Catherine was born in 1954. Catherine is the author of 11 novels. She's also published one non-fiction book, An Unconsidered People, a social history that explores the lives of Irish immigrants in London in the 1950s. She's achieved enormous success as a writer. Her novel, The Things We Know Now, won the Giovanni Boccaccio International Prize for Fiction in 2013 and was shortlisted for the Novel of the Year at the Irish Book Awards. The years that followed was longlisted for the International Dublin Literary Award. She was the recipient of the Irish Pen Award for Outstanding Contribution to Literature in 2018. And in 2019, her novel, The Way the Light Falls, was shortlisted for the European Strega Prize. 
So Catherine, um, welcome to our table. And I'm going to introduce Eilish now. Eilish Nguyvna was also born in the same year as Catherine in 1954. She was educated at UCD. She's a BA in English, an MPhil in Medieval Studies and a PhD in, in Irish Folklore. She is a former curator of the National Library of Ireland and she's writer, fellow and lecturer in creative writing at UCD and Trinity. And Eilish is also an astute literary critic. She writes short stories. She writes novels in both Irish and English, and she's published almost 30 books. Among her awards are the Stuart Parker Award for Drama, three Bistro Awards for her children's novels, several Oireachtas Awards for her novels in Irish, the Irish Pen Award for Outstanding Contribution to Irish Literature and a Hennessy Hall of Fame Award. Her novel, The Dancer's Dancing, was shortlisted for the Orange Prize for Fiction. Eilish is a member of Estona, also the Irish Affiliation of Artists. So, Eilish, just to start with you, 21 writers from the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. As I said earlier, all poets, there's fiction writers, there's playwrights, writers in Irish and English. All women, mostly born in the 1950s. So we have a fantastic wide range of voices all celebrated here. But I was interested in the fact that in asking them to contribute, you decided not to focus on what has changed since the mid 20th century, but on their journeys, their own personal journeys as writers. And I think this is what makes this collection so interesting, the diversity of the voices and the journeys. So as editor, I suppose my first question is, were you surprised by the diversity of narratives that appeared on your desk and eventually became part of the book? I was pleasantly surprised. The I'd started out, I mean, the idea for the book that I had was that we were born at a lucky time, women like me and Catherine, the mid-1950s. This, mm-hmm. Well, the stereotype of the 1950s is anything but good. It seems like the worst possible time to be a writer or a woman mm-hmm. or, or whatever, or, or anybody almost in Ireland. But um, as you said there in your great introduction, and uh, things changed and um, and they changed you know, there is a tide in the affairs of men and women, and they change kind of just at the right times for us, for the, the babies of the 1954, 55, 56. But mm-hmm. when the stories came in, of course, the age, the originally I thought, gosh, wouldn't it be great to have a book of writers who all, were all born in 1954? <laughs> And maybe you could do that <laughs> because there are a lot of people, there, women uh, writers who are not in the book. Um, anyway, mm. <laughs> um, but, you know, the age yeah. kind of expanded uh, to earlier and later. So uh, they're, they're between, I think, 1948 and 1960. The youngest person in the book, Cherry Smith, was born. So and their, their, their experiences mm. had... So much that was different, and and that it, the the personal stories are 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 really all different. Their interpretation or their perspective on history, you know, sometimes it's not as positive as mine was. They uh, they they kind of don't see that things have changed. That it's all so great uh, for women writers. So, so it, I think that that is a very interesting aspect of the book. And but on the other hand, there's lots that they have in common, even s- small things, I suppose, that you might anticipate. For instance, mm-hmm. an awful lot of the writers in the book 
were interested in writing already when they were children. But of course, what's really most interesting is that three or four of them weren't interested at all. And like Celia Dufresne open saying, there was nothing in my childhood that suggested I would be a writer, or I'm paraphrasing her slightly. Moya Cannon, you know, these are great writers, had no intention of being a writer, even though uh, until she was 21 or 22 or something, and her brother suggested to her that she write poetry. I, I, I thought those stories were fantastic, really. And then other, th- other things they had in yeah. common was they were all readers, of course. They all read the, the, the name that crops up most frequently, uh, actually, uh, as in childhood reading is Enid Blyton, I think. And, and obviously mm-hmm. Little Women and Joe March is there in many of the essays. And, and, and then they move on. An awful, a lot of the women yeah. writers in the book took a degree in English uh, literature, like Catherine, like me. Haven't actually counted, but certainly more than 50% of them did that. And that's an area where they all had the same experience uh, in a way that there weren't hardly any women on the syllabuses when they went to college in 1971, and there were hardly any women lecturers. On the other hand, Sophia and Helen in the north, and most of them say, yeah, but it was great anyway. I mean, we, we, we loved literature. We didn't really particularly pay mm. much attention to the fact that, you know, there was only Emily Dickinson and Emily Bronte uh, on the course. Kind of had to, I certainly had a blind spot about that. And I, I, I think that comes through the essays as well. But it is the variety and the personal stories that are most interesting. I really loved that story by Ivy Bannister when she was describing coming to Dublin in the 1970s. It was very funny, wasn't it? It wasn't what you expected. <laughs> I thought, you know, coming from New York would have been lively and interesting. But she said, no, Dublin was absolutely an extraordinary place in the 1970s. Yeah, um, Ivy's wonderful essay is a great accolade to Dublin in the 1970s. And I think she opens by saying Dublin made me a writer. And, you know, it's all about great literary conversations at Bewley's and meeting writers all over the place and everything. And uh, But I think what illustrates how different the essays are is that just before Ivy's essays, uh, essay or just after it is Mary Rose Callahan, who happens to be a good friend of Ivy's, but um, I don't think they were cahoots about this. But Mary Rose says, if I hadn't gone to America, I would never have become a writer. Exactly the opposite. So, I know that's right. That's exactly right. And then you had Mary um, Morrissey as well saying that she she went to Australia and that's where she decided I'm going to be a writer when she was there. So they're they're really diverse essays. But just going back to again, why why you wanted to gather these essays together? You said that the idea of look, we have a woman writer came to you in the aftermath of waking the feminist movement established in 2015 against the the poor representation of women playwrights in the Abbey Theatre's program, which was commemorating at the time the centenary of the 1916 Rising, and it got you thinking, didn't it, Eilish? about a previous cohort of Irish women writers and thinkers, women like Alva Smith, Evelyn Conlon, Mary Dorsey, Liz McManus, Mary O'Donnell, who really had bravely fought an earlier fight in the 70s and 80s regarding gender issues in Irish literature. And it got you thinking, had these spirited women's fight in some way been forgotten about? Is that correct, Eilish, or did you feel that? Um, Yes, uh, although, of course, 
totally supportive of the waking feminists uh, movement and um they were right that um in the theater world gender equality definitely uh, has not taken place it hasn't it hasn't kept pace at all with um developments in the world of fiction and poetry i'd say fiction has done best and poetry maybe second mm. and then uh, drama right down at the bottom for for whatever yeah complicated reasons no doubt but indeed in the 1980s i was involved with uh, alba smith and the women's studies forum in ucd and that was my kind of awakening to cultural feminism the feminism of literature literary feminisms and so on and we were fighting these battles and the gender wars as far as as far as literature was concerned back then and i mean there were all these the initiatives like arlen house attic press um the National Women's Writers Workshops, where I met a lot of those people you, you, you mentioned, Liz McManus and Marie de Woods and so on, people who still know very well and have become my kind of literary friends and friends. So, yeah, it was as if that story had been kind of, you know, well, not forgotten, but younger women just didn't really know about it. <laughs> so, which is perfectly understandable, just as we didn't know, because there were earlier iterations of the same thing as well, as if we keep having a new, um, we're always waking the feminists in, in Irish literature. So, absolutely, that was one of the reasons. I mean, I, 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 I had, there were other sort of inspirations as well. You know, as I mentioned, David, in the book somewhere, David Lodge's memoir, Quite a Good Time to Be Born, I, I thought, yeah, I was born at quite a good time in Ireland, 1954. And, uh, and yeah, I think I, I, I also know sometimes writers forget or deliberately forget some of their inspirations. And I know I was in Chicago, in Andersonstown, in about five years ago, so this was all about the Waking the Feminist Time and so on. And I saw in the shop an anthology of essays by writers, I think just random women writers. It was a women's bookshop, so I'm sure it was. And yeah, that gave me the idea too. I thought, yeah, we could, I thought our stories should be told by uh, by ourselves. Yeah, and, and definitely I very much... Yeah, I very much enjoy them. Also, that idea that I think emerging women writers of the 70s, the 80s and the 1990s, they wrote in a very male dominated world. I remember it myself, like I started publishing in the early 1990s and going to readings and I'd practically be the only the only woman poet of my age there. But I began to view these essays as when I was reading them, they're quite a clear eyed picture between that time and the current literary time, which is overflowing with uh, female writers like uh, Claire Louise Bennett, Danielle McLaughlin, Sally Rooney, Louise Candy and others. I'm just wondering, have you had any response from from that cohort of writers to to this collection of essays? That's a very good question. I don't think so. No. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder, are they reading it and what they're making of it? Because it gives such a brilliant history of what came before, I think, you know, and as you said, 
all those writers who fought so hard. It was a time of doom and gloom, the 50s. I mean, my father's generation, he was always complaining about it. But I find it so interesting, Eilish, that you're saying for you, it was a lucky time. Catherine, I'm going to bring you in now. Did you feel that as well? It was a lucky time to have been born. Hi, and uh, thank you very much for inviting us to take part in this this morning. OK, so I think for, for me, the, the, the lucky bit came in at the time when when it happened by the birth lottery, if you like, that I was just about to go to secondary school at the time when free education was introduced. And I know that a lot of other contributors mentioned this as well. And I think it was a it was very significant because fees at that time for secondary school were quite significant. And I know there were some worried conversations at home about where to find the fees to send me to secondary school. So I think that was a real stroke of luck um, and something that, you know, meant that that education was accessible. And then by the time I came to third level, I qualified for a grant on leaving search results and so on. None of those things would have been possible in previous generations. So that certainly was a very lucky break um, for me. But when Ailish just asked us to talk about our writing journeys, I thought, oh, yeah, well, I kind of know what I need to say there and, you know, go back over the history of publication and whatever. But in fact, it was a much more revealing exercise, I think, as I got into it. And all sorts of things began to come up as being important, which not that I had forgotten, but I had consigned them to somewhere else. And I think it's in Ailish's own essay where she mentions the blind spot and she has spoken about it just a few minutes ago. I mean, at university as well, there there were no women, I think apart from George Eliot was the one that I can remember on the syllabus. And it seemed in some way not to be particularly startling because the whole world was so completely male dominated. And we were used to women having roles such as teachers and nurses and whatever, but certainly not raising their head above the parapet in any significant way. And then you roll that on, you know, a number of years to when I started being published in the 90s. And this was, you may remember, the the time of that awful phrase, chick lit, where any woman who decided to use her pen was automatically consigned to this. And it used to surprise me even then that there were a lot of men writing in that light romantic fiction vein as well, such as Tony Parsons and several others in the UK. But that label was never given to them. And if it was, well, first of all, it didn't last. And it certainly wasn't, you know, in any kind of a disparaging way. So there seemed, you know, there was almost um, an expectation that if you wrote, your only interest was writing light romantic fiction. And that was very definitely your place. So I remember being quite startled uh, when my second novel was published in 1998, which was a very dark psychological thriller about essentially about toxic masculinity. And I had some interviewers ask me, well, is this chick lit? Because for some reason, everything that women wrote about either had to be light romantic fiction or needed to come from their own personal experience so that in some way writing was kind of therapy of or unfiltered autobiography that, you know, you didn't need the artistry that a male writer might use in order to present his view of the world or his insight on character and whatever. So it was it it came up in in quite shocking ways, but mostly I would have to say in, in Ireland, you know, mostly at home. I think other countries might have been a little bit more ahead of the curve in that 
But when, when Eilish was speaking earlier about the, um, you know, about the invisibility, I think it's in Leah Mills' essay where she talks about the revelation of going into the stacks one day in UCD. And yes, of course, we all knew about people like Lady Gregory, but discovering so many other Irish women writers of previous generations that she had never heard of, such as Emily Lawless or Catherine Tynan. So it seems as though every generation of women is almost destined to rediscover the generation that preceded them, because to say that, you know, as I have seen in some places that, well, no, there weren't women poets, for example, published because, well, there weren't any women poets writing in Ireland in the 1920s and 30s. You know, you speak to Alan Alan Hayes of Ireland House about that and he'll put you right. And there were, of course, but there seems to be this shroud of silence which needs to be broken all the time around women's literary efforts. And Unfortunately, I think that the, the furore over the waking the feminist was just the latest iteration of that, of that silence. And in Ailish, in your essay as well, you mentioned Mike Murphy and the Arts Show saying to you, so Ailish, you're a woman's writer and you write for women. So this is this is exactly what Catherine is talking about, this perception that you're only writing for a cohort of women. But then I suppose, as Catherine says, there there are but there were other women writers before you, like Edna Bryan, Kate O'Brien, who dealt with so many of the issues which affected and have affected us all as women writers as we're emerging. The attitudes to contraception, abortion, divorce, homosexuality, so many. And Catherine, you began writing yourself in the 80s. I know you went out and you campaigned. Yeah, you were very active politically yes. and you actually got quite disheartened because you were a teacher as well and you were worrying for your students and you wondered, should you leave the country? All these concerns and worries. Isn't that right, Catherine? The, the, yeah, and the, I found, I mean, the 80s, I think, were a very grim time for all of us. And I think we, you know, we'll all remember that memorable television broadcast where Charlie Hawhey talks about everybody living away, as he said, beyond their means. Mm. And well, you know, most of the population was not living beyond its means. And certainly uh, in the school that I was teaching in in the 80s, there was definitely that feeling that we were educating a generation for the dole queue. It was mm. quite a hopeless time. It was a really difficult decade. Mm. And then at the time, the, 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 the abortion referendum, which failed, and the kind of the toxic nature of that debate was very, very disheartening. And then the divorce action, the divorce referendum also failing. Mm. Um, and I had done a lot of campaigning during both, both of those, on both of those issues, and I remember going back again for the second divorce referendum and just feeling, and this became the subject of my first novel, that the stories hadn't changed. The mm-hmm. same difficult personal stories were still being experienced over and over again. And yet there was this silence around them in society that they, these people were not being listened to, mm-hmm. that the need for a second chance was not being listened to. So Ireland just felt to me during those days as, you know, a place not just economically stultified, but but socially also stopped in a particular place that I thought, I don't really know that I want to spend very much more of my life here. Mm-hmm. Now, my my plea to emigrate fell on deaf ears. Um, so I think in response to that was actually when I, I'd always been writing, I'd written stories ever since I was a child, but I really began to write seriously at that particular time because that was something which was fueled by my restlessness. It was something I needed something to invest in that was removed from what I was experiencing, you know, in an ordinary daily reality. Um, 
And, Mm -hmm. you know, you live through those times. We all lived through those times and you begin to come out then into into the 90s when things begin to improve. And then things Mm -hmm. like the Celtic Tiger, the so-called Celtic Tiger happened, which just made Ireland into a completely unrecognisable place. And I think we have lived through a time of, and I know every generation feels this, that they lived through a time of enormous change. But I think really the last 30 to 40 years in Ireland, the change has been unprecedented. I mean, if you look at the generations before that, say even up from the 30s until maybe the end of the 60s or mid 70s, Everything in Ireland was still Mm. recognisable from what it had been before. But it's only coming towards the end of the 70s that things really begin to change, you know, in in, in so many ways. Not that they began to change in society immediately, but, you know, I remember as a student coming towards the end of secondary school, being aware of what was going on in the women's movement, for example, in the United States. And that was a kind of, wow, you know, there is an alternative story here. There is something different to the official narrative that can be explored. So there was a tiny chink of things beginning to to open up. It took a lot longer. Um, but I think what drew me most to writing was, and it's something I still feel, was that, that power that fiction has to make a reader enter a silence enter a different story, a different reality. Because I think one of the the powers that fiction has is to not to document how something was, but to make a reader feel how something was, what it feels like to be in another life. And and that that, that was kind of the power of fiction that I began to explore back in the 80s, although I started with poetry, I think, like most writers, but then found that where I felt most at home was actually in the novel. Yeah, I think these essays as well, you touched on something there. They really are a story of persistence as well, that writers persist in spite of everything, you know. And and there's a brilliant foreword, actually, in this collection of essays by Martina Devlin. And you, you spoke about education and I... I was really I really liked the bit when she said education was our Trojan horse and it sneaked us inside the citadel. Those with the writing gene were given given a fighting chance. And I could hear the fighting still in your voice there, Catherine, and in your beliefs. And I love that, that these all these women writers, they believe in writing so much. And in spite of all the political, you know, histories that were going on and the backgrounds, essentially they were writers and they wanted to tell a story and they wanted, as you say, to to get readers to imagine what it was like to be in the world of the characters they've created and to feel it. So essentially they are writers. And I think this is a collection of essays about possibility and, and belief, actually believing in yourself as a writer. I know Ailish and Catherine, you've written about it and so have other essays in this collection about the fact that it takes a while until you finally kind of believe in yourself as a writer. Because as you've pointed out there, Catherine, so much was going on. But Ailish, for you, education did actually really help you as well, because you grew up, as you said, said yourself, in a less than fashionable area of Ranelagh at the time. It wasn't the Ranelagh we know now. And education did actually push you forward and and help you, didn't it? Absolutely. And like Catherine, it was very important and it was, I was very lucky to be just in time for the free, free education. Actually, I wasn't just in time for it because it came about a year after I started secondary school. And I remember 
I was under a lot of pressure from my mother to win something called the Dublin Corporation Scholarship, which I did do. But I, I mean, as a 12 year old child, I thought, well, what will happen to me if I don't win this? I mean, the, maybe I won't go to secondary school at all. And I didn't know where I would go because you finish school like my school finished with sixth class, like most of them when you were 12. And I knew you have to stay in school till you're 14. So where do these, where do you go in the two years in between? Everyone in my class was going to secondary school. Anyway, it didn't happen, but because, because I got that scholarship. And then a year later, the free education came in. And I have to say, I'm very grateful to the Dublin Corporation and the Irish State for funding my education from then to when I got my PhD. And even even though we didn't have to pay fees in school after 1967 or something, Dublin Corporation used to send the scholarship check to my mum. And so, you know, there was a little bit of extra money for, of course, it's school is much more expensive than just the fees. But that was... That was so important. Yeah, I mean, certainly going to secondary mm-hmm. school would be uh, important for a writer. Whatever about the, I wouldn't. I don't think I would have gone to university if it hadn't been for for the grants, which were also available. And of course, I also yeah. did live in Renala, and I could walk to Belfield. So all that was kind of very fortunate for me and for. Other lucky people of my generation, not for all of them. Uh, sometimes I wonder, though, of course, uh, as I, I studied English and was really interested in the history of English literature and saw that as the way to become a writer. But of course, there are other ways. You don't have to go to university. And sometimes I wonder, hmm, would, it, would I have been a more interesting writer if I hadn't kind of been reading from Beowulf to Virginia Woolf or whatever? <laughs> uh, but, what could have been if I'd been working, I don't know, in a shop or, you know, whatever. So, but, but, because I think, you know, in some ways adversity contributes to, to your, is inspiring. Um, so, um, I, you, you mentioned, Enda, that the, the stories are stories of persistence because, of course, um, one aspect of the 21 writers here, 22, I think, if you include Martina, she, she's, she's a little younger than, than the rest of us is that mm. they started writing and they went on and they're still writing and I do think the oxygen generated by um, literary feminism and so on has been quite important in you know in allowing permitting encouraging or even forcing <laughs> the writers to go on because they kind of realize it's not just about mm. themselves and their own personal gratification it's I certainly felt that when I was in the Women's Studies Forum in 1985-86. Hey, it's not just about me, you know, I am going to be a writer, blah, blah, blah. It's, I am now part of a movement, the women writers. And it's, it's, and I was a very angry, Mm -hmm. uh, well, an angry young woman at that stage in my personal life, kind of, you know, juggling the kids and the house and I had a job and, how hard it was to get time yeah. to write. I was very, I was very angry. Um, on the other hand, it gave me yeah. a lot of material to write about, you know, and a kind of kick, a kick in the backside. <laughs> also, I think, you know, we were talking about possibility as well. I mean, things were helped by the fact that 
publishing houses started up, like Ireland House first started in 1975 by Catherine Rose and then women like Margaret McCurtain and Eve Van Boland, they came on board. And then in 1984, Mary Paul Keane and Roisin Conroy, they set up Attic Press. But there were other publishing houses as well, weren't there, that welcomed women writers like Salmon, Poolbeg, Chloe Connacht, Summer Palace. The, these feminist publishing houses, they were so important, weren't they, to to women writers? And I, I think most specifically to the, the writers in this collection of essays. It, did you feel, Catherine, that, that, that they were important, that it was opening a way for women to, to have their work published? Very much so. And I think Alan Hayes has done us all a great service by the essay that he has uh, in the book, also looking at the history of the of the women's publishing houses. Um, when when I started being published, it was actually by a, a British publishing house, because that was the time, the late 90s, when a lot of British publishers set up offices here because they actually saw the potential that there were there were actually a lot of writers who hadn't managed to be published here who, and, and that that was a situation that could be mined, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, so I my first book was put, my first two books were published by Jonathan Cape. But just to go back to the, for a moment to that notion of persistence, mm-hmm. I just think it's a really important one, that persistence and tenacity, because <clears throat> side by side with the belief, which I think is expressed in different ways in the essays, that something you write is only a text until a reader engages with it, that your, you know, your poetry or your fiction or your play only comes to life when there is the other engagement by a participant, whether it's a reader or a member of the audience. So there is that and nobody wants to write something to sit in a drawer. Mm. So you put that really passionate belief on one side, side by side with something which Mary Morrissey talks about very honestly in her essay, which she calls a publishing drought. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, and there are times when, you know, for whatever reason, uh, what my last book, for example, was turned down by several publishers because it was regarded as too quiet. Mm -hmm. So there is some sort of, you know, an arbitrary standard which comes about and it seems to, and this is only, you know, anecdotally, but it seems to affect perhaps women writers more than men, that if you don't write something that fits whatever the publisher has in mind for that particular market, the, the almighty market will then I know. You don't get published. And that's, I mean, I'm talking about somebody who has, who have people who have significant publishing experience behind them, such as Mary Morrissey. But suddenly there was this 15 years that she talks about. And, you know, that's something which I think other people in their essays mention quite honestly as well, that, you know, if you're not prepared to fit what you write to a market, then what, what do you do? And the answer is, Clearly, by these 21 contributors, we just keep going anyway, Mm -hmm. because writing, it's not just what we are. It's not just what we do. It's something that we are. It's like somebody asking you, well, why do you breathe? It's it's the same answer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought I thought she was very honest, wasn't she? And then she said, but I did write. I published it. I, I, or she wrote anyway a um, collection of um, yeah. stories. She wrote novels, but they just weren't taken up. Just persisted. So yeah. What did she do? She said, "Yeah, I just persisted. I kept going." And then, then it all ha- it all came out. Then she she said there was this kind of birth of writing that came from her, which was brilliant. I think that the, that when you read that, the honesty of that, it gives you hope as a writer, and it kind of makes you feel where well, we're all in it together. We're a kind of a community, or as Ada says, a movement. And you just have to keep at it, don't you? But also, I think Ivan Boland spoke of workshops as generating oxygen. I remember. 
when I was starting off, there were no workshops. There was nowhere really you could go. I had to go to England to do my master's in creative writing. But th- that thing about the, the workshops, I mean, Catherine, you were speaking there. Nobody wants their poems to be in a drawer, their stories in a drawer. But to bring them out and to meet a community of like minded people, that was a, a great thing that started a, kind of in the late 80s, early 90s. Isn't that right, Ailish? I mean, it, it was very liberating for people to, to go to these workshops, wasn't it? Yes, the whole workshop movement also started, I think, there were, as you say, so even when you were starting, which was a, a bit later, but certainly there was nothing about workshops or anything um, in the 1970s, you know, when we were eager young writers in college and so on. I think Listowel Writers Week is really the first one, and Bashwa was and still is, I suppose, very much um, is, based on, 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 on workshops. And in 1978, I went to a short story workshop in the Stowe Writers Week. And that was the very first one I ever attended. And, you know, that, that was for, I think it was actually for a week in those days. <laughs> it was a week and not a weekend. And then, you know, in the 80s, they started Ireland House and Ivan Boland started the Nash, something called the National Women's Writers Workshop. That was kind of in a so, you know, they were doing these Maxwell House competitions and collections of stories and so on. And they, they, they organized workshops for women only. I mean, that was the real, that was my first experience of kind of the women's thing and literature coming together and Ivan facilitating the workshops and saying we generate oxygen and so on and that is absolutely true I mean they generated oxygen you kind of were in touch um, with uh, other writers and other women writers and in the case of that one called the National Women's Writers Workshop which several of the contributors in the book were in we, 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 when it was over, it went on for six months or a year or something like that, once a month. You know, a group formed out of it as frequently as the case with the, with, the, with these kind of things. And, uh, and that group continues, survives to this day. <laughs> it's, it must be one of the oldest uh, writers groups in Ireland that has, uh, you know, also persisted and succeeded in, in surviving for about yeah, whatever it is, nearly 30 years. Um, yeah. And, and of course, as you know, in the meantime, I mean, there are workshops all over the place. The Irish Writers Centre provides ongoing fantastic workshops. And there's the professionalization of the teaching of creative writing in the universities. I think they all have creative writing programs at this stage, whereas, um, took a long time for that to kind of, get into the universities here but it certainly has at this stage so yeah and I the the result of that is many more people writing a lot more competition I think I mean it, it's it's never been easy but I think now it's there are an awful lot of very good writers out there trying to get their stuff published and you know they learn fast in these MAs and so on in in the in the universities how how to the techniques of writing so I think I think 
standards are really high. It is true, Eilish, that things have changed so much. And it's so it's I think it's a good time to be a writer now as a woman writer. But for all the talk, we've been talking a lot about kind of gender and politics. But what I thought was fascinating that most of these essays show that other things were more important to these 21 writers. Mary O'Malley was inspired by returning to Connemara from Portugal at a time of economic recession in the 80s. And she felt she had to write about these. Mary O'Donnell was influenced by her home place of Monaghan and Patrick Kavanagh and his enduring poetic presence there. Moy Cannon, she studied history and politics, but it was Donegal. It was her childhood. It was the mountains, the scenery there that inspired her. And in your essay, Catherine, you speak about your childhood and how much your own family history intrigued you. And I was interested by the quote that you gave from Margaret Yorkenar, who speaks of writers and the emotional storage that they initiate very early on, that laying down of sedimentary memory. Do you think you obviously think this is true? And it's an idea that I'm really interested in as well. Yeah, I do. Um, I mean, and again, it was something that I only really began to think about in a structured way when I was doing the essay, because so much of what I remembered in my access to books as a, you know, as a young person was as a child going to different libraries, going to Charleville Mall, going to Marino, going to Rohini, because Clontarf, astonishingly, where I grew up, had no library and I think mm. still has no library. Um, so those were the three that would have been closest to me. So I remembered all, I remembered the, you know, the, the, the feeling of, of that delightful feeling of being overwhelmed mm. by choice when you walked into a library with my parents' tickets, knowing that I could take out the maximum amount of books for every two weeks. But yes, my father was a great storyteller in the sense that he didn't tell us stories as such with beginning, middle and end, but he told us snippets of his experience of growing up in Belfast in the 1930s. And my mother's experience would have been quite different growing up in North County, Dublin, mm-hmm. in a similar time. But I suppose it, because I don't know about the two of you, but I remember, you know, being, I think I was probably 12 or 13 when I realised that the north of Ireland was actually under a completely different system of government from where I lived. And this mm-hmm. was a revelation because it was something that had been kept quite quiet, I think, in the South. There wasn't that that understanding or that reaching out or that embracing of of the north of Ireland, of the six counties as they were known. And I remember listening to, you know, my dad's experiences of um of being discriminated against, um, of the the divisions within the community, of what it was like to try and make your way. Um, And then, of course, you know, when I was still quite young in in, in 1968, when Burn Tullet Bridge and the Civil Rights March exploded, all of that kind of, there was almost as though there was a steady build up throughout all of my life of stories and snippets and visualizations of things that had happened to my father and his family. The rest of his family, basically because of the situation in the North, left and came to live in Ranelagh. They they left the North completely. Um, And so I just began to feel that there was a whole other side to my family history, which really needed to be explored. And, And I did that. And I spent a lot of time in Again, another library to which I'd be very grateful, which is the Linen Hall Library in Belfast, who were endlessly patient with all of my requests. Um, but I suppose the personal side of that as well was my dad was actually, when I was beginning to write this, my dad was suffering from the early signs of Alzheimer's. 
But his memory of his childhood was was quite vivid, as tends to happen. So for me, that was a lovely experience of being able, you know, to be writing, to be telling him his story and writing his family story at the same time and allowing him access to all of those memories which were and and would eventually disappear completely. So I think, you know, the things that you hear as a child, the things that you experience as a child, for writers, certainly, they have a huge impact. And it's only as we write in later life, I think, that we start to unpack the impact and the influence that all of those things have had. And I don't know who it was, but some some other writer said that really we're all that's all we're writing from. All writers are writing from their childhood, different versions of that childhood and the people we become. So I think it's a, it's a very, very formative time. And I think, you know, as a writer... I think we're, we all get a, a, um, maybe a separate antenna or perhaps one that's just a little bit more finely tuned because, again, most writers you would speak to would talk about that sense when they were young of being an outsider, being maybe a little bit different and being the person who observed rather than the person who was taking part in all sorts mm-hmm. of different activities. So I think that's something which you know, stays with us in what I call those sedimentary layers of memory and we can we can go back and explore them. It's like a personal archaeology when we write as adults. And Eilish, these essays, you must be proud of having gathered them all together because they are so numerous. They're so varied. They're interesting. I mean, just listening to the two of you today, I've been delighted to hear to hear all your stories and how you emerged and developed as writers. Um, it's a hopeful time, isn't it, Eilish? And when you, as we said, it, this is a collection of writers who've persisted, who will continue write, to write. So I'm just wondering, um, Eilish, What's in store for you next? And Catherine, are you working on anything at the moment, Eilish? I, I'm writing and I'm working on a novel at the moment. Um, I really want to write a novel. Uh, of course, I have written novels in the past, but I've written so many collections of short stories. But I want to kind of immerse myself in in in, in a novel, a long project that will keep me going yeah, for, for, for a while. So that's what I'm working on. But I'm I'm immensely proud of the collection, really. Um, I just love it, you know, and mm-hmm. I love talking about it and going around promoting it and so on, which I normally am not so keen on doing with my own stuff. That's kind of interesting as well. But, yeah, I'm, I think there's room for more of this kind of writing. And, uh, you know, we're all writing our poems and our stories and our novels etc etc but somehow the yeah mm, these these yeah. uh memoir type autobiographical tales of how i became a writer are, are just absolutely fascinating and each time we have something like this and thank you so much for inviting us and and contributors talk they say different things like they expand on the pieces in the in, I, mean, I don't mean that they contradict what they've written but they expand on it and you kind of realize hey every one of these could be writing a whole book about themselves and there must be another 20 or 30 i, I don't know how many other women writers not to mention men writers who were born mm-hmm. in the 1950s mm-hmm. are out there and have their story to tell and we 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 have i know everyone thinks they've lived in times of great change but we have lived in a time of great change in ireland and and they have been very interesting times so the historical context for us is is just 
interesting. Yeah, it is. And Catherine, what's what's ahead for you now? I've been working on a novel about motherhood for the last, right. I'm now into my fourth year, I think, um, uh, looking at the experience of motherhood, particularly in Ireland, although obviously there are lots of universal connections as well, but just looking at Irish society and a view of what motherhood should be and then what it is really from the 1950s until now. Um, but it's it's endlessly fascinating. And although lockdown and the lockdowns were very difficult in so many ways for all of us, um, to me, that was a project that really helped me combat the isolation and the anxiety and the fear that that awful time has brought into all of our lives. And mm-hmm. I'm endlessly grateful for having had projects like that to be able just to to dive into and a way just to inhabit that other world which books have always offered me, either writing them or reading them. So I think we've come to the end of our Books for Breakfast episode today, which concentrated on Look, It's a Woman Writer, Irish Literary Feminisms, 1970 to 2020. And as I said earlier, it's a collection of essays which demonstrates the importance of these 21 Irish women writers born in the middle of the 20th century who are, I have to say, movers and shakers and are without doubt true literary survivors. There's a foreword by novelist Martina Devlin and afterward by Ireland House publisher Alan Hayes. And really, look, it's a woman writer. It's essential reading for anyone with an interest in how Ireland finally began to value the voices of women. And as usual, all details of this book will be available on booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com. And for now, thank you to Catherine Dunn and to Ailish Nguivna for coming in to talk at the breakfast table today. Thank you so much, and it was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Catherine. We, I think we've reached the end of our Books for Breakfast podcast this morning. I'm definitely rushing off to have more coffee. And I'm Enda Wiley and I have Peter Sarah here with me. And Peter, would you like to tell everyone about the details of the podcast if they'd like to listen again? Well, you can subscribe at all the usual sources, Google and Apple and so on. And if you want to check out the notes that go along with this podcast, you can go to Books for Breakfast buzzsprout.com and yeah so we'll be back again we'll have the toast on we'll have the kettle boiling we will have more books to discuss and we're looking forward to having you here so goodbye everybody goodbye.